The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome, welcome to, to the, the Legendarium. Legendarium. In the book, Santa Claus is like, Susan, here is your bow and arrows. Take them to look cool. Don't use don't them, use though. Them. I don't expect you to be in the fighting. And then in the movie, it's like, Susan, take this bow and arrow and shoot that ogre in the fucking <laughs> face. Welcome back, everybody, to the Legendarium Podcast. This is episode number 166, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is our second episode in the Chronicles of Narnia, and we thank you very much for listening. If you are listening, please go like us on Facebook, follow us on Reddit, and for heaven's sake, please leave a review in iTunes. We very much appreciate those, and they help more than you know. Anyway, I am Craig Hanks, your host, and over there, he's icier than Jadis and is just as afraid of cats. It's Todd Wenty. Meow. Okay. He's even <laughs> he's even more likely than Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to give liquor to kids. It's Ken Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> cool dad. And and invite him into my van. <laughs> I, I was gonna say cave. Oh, but, well, you know. And he's as useful as place settings on the stone table. It's Ryan Bruckman. <laughs> Is that kind of like a communion plate or something? There you go. Oh. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> the final. This is me. this is going to be a rough one, ladies and gentlemen. I, you know, we're we're four fairly, you know, to varying degrees, we're four fairly religious people who are uh, going to be walking a tightrope of. Uh, no, I will be struck down before the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> God has been sharpening up the, the tip of a lightning bolt for me, knowing this one was coming. Oh boy, here we go. So. Uh, you can hear the whiz, whiz, whiz of the knife being sharpened, can't when you? My, when my hair goes up, all of you <laughs> I'm go scared. Get hard, hard yeah. to the floor. Uh, okay, so a little housekeeping, obviously, patreon.com slash legendarium. I want to encourage you all to go there and support the show. Uh, I am thinking there probably needs to be some tweaking of how our Patreon page works in light of the fact that we're going to be doing not just uh podcast episodes but also soon we'll be doing a lot more video episodes um and so i'll probably tweak that but there will be one more round very soon i'm hoping to get this done next month uh, in the month of february doing one more round of uh packages for the five dollar patreons those gift packages we send out uh and so look out for those all of you five dollar patrons and if you aren't one um there's still some goodies for the three dollar patrons some uh uh, audio from the last year and a half or so gosh yeah a, f a few uh online goodies just for the three dollar patrons so you can go check that out um otherwise I'll, I'll keep you all up to date on what the patreon situation will be going forward uh, also go to reddit.com uh, or sorry the legendarium.reddit.com is where you can join the conversation and thank you to everybody who does so. We got a lot of great uh, suggestions for talking points today for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anyway, I think we're good. So maybe we start talking about this book. I wrote an intro. Ooh. Now, I'm not happy about this <laughs> because Ken wrote an intro last week that was better than my stuff. So yeah, that it, sucks. 
But if I had read it live, it wouldn't have been any better. So. It, well, maybe. I don't know. Um, anyway, we uh, we didn't do an intro on The Magician's Nephew, but uh, I, I kind of promised that I would do one. So I, I, I don't worry, though, everybody. I definitely half-assed it. So it's back to normal. Which is still a quarter more than you normally get. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We so tried this time. <laughs> the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first or maybe second installment in the Chronicles of Narnia in which we meet Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, four lucky kids who get to skip the bombing of London and instead inherit a magic kingdom. <laughs> in a rich guy's country manner, Lucy discovers a magic wardrobe that sends her to Narnia, the magical winter wonderland where animals talk, fawns exist, and kids get to drink hard liquor before bedtime. <laughs> of the four kids, Lucy is unfailingly sweet, Edmund is unfailingly rotten, and Peter and Susan are unfailingly forgettable. But all four of them get to meet Aslan, Narnia's Christ figure who pays for Edmund's betrayal by letting the White Witch kill him in Edmund's stead. But Aslan has a plan. He knows that if he makes this self selfless sacrifice, he will break the bonds of death to come back and righteously kill that mean old witch. He does this and installs the four small children as monarchs over all the fairy creatures and talking animals. As the only humans in Narnia are siblings, I don't know where this leaves the future of humanity, but I suppose that's a question for book three. Wait until book three. Wait until that's book nice. three. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I literally did not realize until I started writing this that uh, there is a book three full of humans all over Narnia. Yes. And I'm not sure how that happened. <laughs> they're they're the not, only ones. You haven't read that? It's It's been so many years. It's, I it's been a long, long time. I, I don't okay. remember. Oh, I do remember how they addressed it. Okay, yes. we'll, yeah, it doesn't matter. We'll get there. You'll get it. it it's not quite as creepy and icky and incestuous as it sounds. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, that's too bad. A little more human trafficking style, but you know. Wow. Wow. Just well, the, a little. The end of the book. We'll just we'll just jump to the end. The end of the book mentions that there are suitors for Lucy's hand, so apparently there are humans there while they're there. Yeah, but those were fawns. Well, you know. It's uh, the horns. Okay, look, horns, we're getting baby. into some weird territory. Let's let's. Uh, Ooh, let's rewind. Bring it Seven back. Seven minutes a little, or less to bestiality. Got it. <laughs> a little hot centaur action. Oh, <laughs> Look, uh, and there's the wheeze, everybody. The wheeze is back. <laughs> That's going to be his name from now on, the wheeze. The wheeze. Todd the wheeze Wenty. Uh, that would uh, be the first time I'd heard that. So uh, let's let's kick it to you guys first what do you want to talk about did you enjoy the book i don't i ryan initial why don't thoughts? you go first initial, initial thoughts. thoughts uh this one this is one of those where i've come into it having spent a lot of my time as a kid knowing this story sure um there is an animated version of this that no i'm not talking the disney live action this is an animated um very much in the style of the old hobbit like the 19 sure whatever the 70s that. one yeah that we had growing up that i watched I, I I burnt through that VHS multiple times. I loved watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The tape was clear by the time you were done with yeah, it. It yeah, like rubbed much. all the magnetic stuff. <laughs> um, and I have read the story. Like I actually had read the story, but this is a, a very familiar story, and it's one of those that most people have some familiarity with, whether they've read it or not. Well, right, because they're steeped in Western civilization, which right. revolves around the story of the New Testament, basically. Pretty right. much. So. Um, so for this one, this read through this time, I was trying to kind of go, okay, what can I glean from this that isn't what I learned in junior high about this book or high school, mm -hmm. that sort of thing? Didn't get much. Um, <laughs> really? I mean, there's stuff there, yeah. But Wait, say that again, stuff you didn't remember or just 
new, no. new concepts or... new ideas new things that weren't like it was hard not to immediately just go all right this is this is you know wrapped around the the christian allegory concept sure. and i was like i, I want to i want to find something that's not about that to talk about sure and it was hard because that really is for something the at the core of what this is that's and and i i want to come back to that point so mm -hmm. let's stick a pin in that Okay. Uh, because we obviously we're going to be talking a lot about the Christian allegory um, or supposition. The That's one thing that I one thing actually that I did because I was trying to do some research outside yeah. of the book as well. That C.S. Lewis didn't consider this well, an we'll, allegory. We'll come back. We'll come okay. back to it. <laughs> I want to get other initial thoughts first. So we'll we'll and, come back to it. Fine. And summer summation of initial thoughts. It's an enjoyable. <laughs> I thought you were just going to go on with your point. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And <laughs> they don't communicate very well, ladies and gentlemen. It's just the way of things. It's been a long time. And friendship. to sum up, screw you, let's talk about this. <laughs> it's a very it's a very good book with a very enjoyable story that you can you can read without having to tie it to something else, but it's sure. It's it's worth yeah. the read. Okay. Ken, initial thoughts? Uh I liked it, although I and this is this is weird considering all of our discussion, our the totality of our discussion for magician for magician's nephew, excuse me. This is why I record. Um after reading this, and this isn't the first time I've read it, but I, I kind of regret reading Magician's Nephew before this. Why? I just haven't. Have you read these before, or I is this your first time? I hadn't read Magician's Nephew before. That was the first time I'd read that actually. Uh. Um, and but I'd read all of I'd read this, and I'd read Prince Caspian, and I'd read A Horse and His Boy. But anyway, um, it felt like. It didn't spoil anything for me, of course, to to read Magician's Nephew, but it feels very much like if I were to to make a series or a mini series or, or a series of movies out of this, it feels like the flashback book, like Magician's Nephew. Magician's Nephew feels like the flashback book. Like uh, what? Are, which book are we talking about today? The mid season. You're talking like that. It's like that mid season episode where they revisit footage oh, from yeah. all their previous yeah, like episodes. Episode February. seven of uh, Stranger Things season two. Is that what that? Yeah, was? yeah. Basically, it's like let's go back in time and let's see how we got to here. You know the, that sort of thing. The one thing about reading Magician's Nephew but, first that I appreciated was the fact that I was like, oh, I know where that wardrobe came from now. And, yes. Oh, and I know yes. where we know Professor why, Kirk is there. And, and we know why in the world there is a lamp post in the middle of all of this place. Mm -hmm. Yep, it, and it explains everything, and that's why I thought. Now I'm I'm changing my mind. It's like I, I like that better in book six. But anyway, uh, I I just I've always enjoyed Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I still do. And and there are a lot of things that I didn't really didn't really stand out to me, but I just enjoyed. I I just kept enjoying. There were a couple of things I well I this thought is, in this, this has been some riveting audio from the <laughs> right? two of you. It was good. There were I liked it. <laughs> there were a couple of things that I caught that I went. <laughs> That I'd never caught before, but in the day and age of Me Too and all of that, I was like, "Oh, what?" Like uh, when when Santa Claus is handing out goodies, and he says, "These are for you, but don't use them because girls don't fight." My you know, my sort of thing. somebody was asking about the differences between the book and the movie, and I noticed that in the book, Santa Claus is like, "Susan, here is your bow and arrows. Take them to look cool." don't use don't them though use i them. don't expect you to be in the fighting and then in the movie it's like susan take this bow and arrow and shoot that ogre in the fucking face <laughs> like it's uh, it's a little take, different take this and go to town it's very much a girl power kind of a moment in the in the movie <laughs> well it's, it's not even really a girl power moment in the movie it's just more of a here's a bow and arrow you yeah. know what to do all yeah. right todd initial thoughts on it, this your umpteenth read through it's yeah it's my umpteenth read through um it's a fun children's story 
And when approached from the standpoint of being a children's story, it feels it feels very much like an like it was a an oral tradition, an oral story that was handed down uh, that then somebody took and copied down the tape Um, because we've got one of the thing. And 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 I like that as a literary device. It makes it um, easier. It it makes it easy to approach for a child um, and it makes it fun to read from that kind of a standpoint. So there's the the little moments where he where where C.S. Lewis as an author inserts things and says, you know, no one felt as bad as as Edmund did at this point in time. You know, little little bits and pieces that are woven in as though you are listening to C.S. Lewis actually say this, tell this story. It made me uh, it made me think of and I didn't write it down, but it made me think of that moment when you read when we were watching uh, the movie The Princess Bride when I was growing up and Peter Falk comes in and starts reading the reading The Princess Bride and, you know, midway through, the, the kid says, oh, Grandpa, you can't do this. She's not supposed to get married to Humperdinck. I think you're taking this too seriously. You know, this, <laughs> this, kind, of, this kind of moment. And so, for me, that was, that, was, that was the one moment in this book that was new, that was different for this time through, is that I, I made that connection and I smiled politely to myself and said, oh, this is still kind of cute. Yeah, I think one of the yeah. things I really enjoy about this that kind of, puts it into the mold of a, a charming children's story is the authorial interjections. And I was wondering, did you guys enjoy those as much as I did? I did. I, I really like the little moments when uh, uh, he says, wherever is this, said Peter's voice, sounding tired and pale in the darkness. I hope you know what I mean by a voice sounding pale. Yeah, Just, you know, yeah, little things yeah. where he says, he makes it very clear that I'm a guy telling you a story. Yep. And it's, here's the story. It's, 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 it's really different from how we treat stories now uh, or how we seem to treat stories now where it's very much like I'm going to immerse you in a story. Yeah. I'm going to immerse you in this world. Uh, C.S. Lewis is more along the lines of eh, it's it's I hope you like it. I'm going to tell you a little story now. You know, the difference between between the omniscient storyteller um, perspective that that gives you a chance to see the thoughts and the way that. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses this is that he uses it not to say this is what he was thinking, but this is the kind of thing he might have been thinking because you might think these same things yourself if you were a spoiled brat eight year old who wasn't getting his way. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. And so it it made it it made it a little less um, a little less feeling like I was jumping from per- inside people's heads to feeling very much like I was sitting around a, a, a fireplace having a story read to me. Right. One thing it made me I, that I did catch about that this time that I hadn't really thought of before was how you can you can see where C.S. Lewis's point is or you, you can see what his his what the important points are I guess like when he's saying uh that Edmund on Edmund Lu- letting Lucy down that this is one of the nastiest things in the story it was the meanest yeah. and most spiteful thing he could do it's like you could see where C.S. Lewis wants you to focus like this I think is bad. Well, not and, you know how could Lucy thought how could Edmund have done this? You know, it was it, it very much is a. Are we talking about allegory yet? But it it, it really is a, a very learning moment story for C.S. Lewis. Well, he's taking the time to actually. We would complain about it more in modern writing. He's taking the time to teach his moral. Yeah, and say yeah, yeah and that's what it is. It's and, a message. This is message fiction. Yeah, and most we we've talked in the past about authors letting whether you come out and say you know this is the moral of the story or you let people interpret and in this case he's very much saying 
this is this is what I want you to glean from this. Mm-hmm. That's okay here. This is a children's story. If you want to take it a different way, you can, but... Well, yeah, and I, I think it's okay that he does it in part because as a message book, we talk a lot about message movies now, you know, it, that have something to say, but as a message book, the message of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is very um, high level. It's very general. It's please be a decent person. Treat those around you with respect uh, and honesty and integrity. Don't um, uh, don't betray your family and friends. That you know that sort of this is very very basic stuff. And so it feels a little bit more okay versus some of the the message books, movies, shows, whatever you know, fill in the blank. The message fiction that we have nowadays a lot of times is very specific political points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we get that a lot these days and. I, I'm not going to say there's not a place for that and that that's not okay or it's stupid or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but it is, um, it, it tends to alienate more people than something like this would. It tends to be more um, divisive, I suppose, you know, just by its very nature. But this is uh, being more general. It's a much more inclusive idea. And not And not all of them are... Not all of his interjections are moral teachings. Sure. Some of them are chances to... My favorite one is actually um, a chance to help you understand a little bit more where they're at and, and gain an emotional connection. Um, it's when Lu- Susan and Lucy are at the table after Aslan yes. has been killed. Mm-hmm. And he says, um, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you have been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. And if you can recognize that feeling, you are right there. Yeah. You can say, and, he could yeah. have written he could have written a lot of descriptive pieces about how sad they were and the way they were feeling, but taking that out and putting it into a place where you can be, that's a chance to connect at a different level that you wouldn't get without that interjection there. But and who I, hasn't felt that? I mean... Uh, well, or, I mean, or when at I least, first or at least read... getting to it without having to spend 15 pages of going through exactly <laughs> what was going on. When in I heart. first read the story, I, you know, I was a kid, I was probably seven, eight years old, um, reading the story and no, I'd never been that sad. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't necessarily relate to it, but I, it was kind of the flip side of that for me where it's like, okay, no, I've never cried myself to sleep that much or, you know, been that sad or emotional. I had a pretty easy childhood. Let's be honest. Uh, but what it did was it it let me see a situation in which somebody might be that sad, and, mm. and it kind of gave me a better understanding of what that sadness looks like. That's the beauty of fiction, is putting you in other people's shoes, you know, yeah. um, or at least that's a beauty of fiction. Nice. Uh, so it was it kind of worked the opposite way for me. Now, you know, being older, I can recognize those emotions uh, more easily, perhaps. But um, But anyway... So that was a good moment. Todd, what do you want to bring up before we go to Reddit points? You know, one of the things that I that I caught a little differently this time through was um, was the 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 prophecy element, um, the stitching in of the of the poem prophecy that was going on. Um, it, it takes a while to get to um, as a as a reader, and and maybe it's partly because. I know where all of this is going, and they talk about the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and uh, are there four of you? Oh, there's only one. Well, I guess that's not going to be that big a deal. You know, I'm I'm reading this, and I'm going, yeah, of course, because there's four thrones at Care Paravel, and they're going to you know sit on them and destroy all the things that the wish is building. But there's 
there's the moment you get to about, you get to page 74, not about, you get to page 74, at least in my edition, and you get those, you, you get those, uh, the poems, the little poem pieces where he, he stitches in and says, oh no, we've been looking forward to this for centuries, for decades, however long it's been in Narnia since the establishment of Narnia. And uh, um, I think it was remembering back to Magician's Nephew, how there was that uh, piece that was added, or, or that the piece about the bell, about ringing the bell and and having an adventure and feeling sad and all those kinds of things. Again, we get this idea that he's doing a wonderful job of adding some pieces, but he just adds them along the way. They don't become this huge thing at the very beginning that runs through the entire piece. He adds them as they're necessary. He adds them to fill it out, and then we move on. Yeah, I noticed that too. There was a, a moment, and I'm trying to remember exactly which moment it is, but um, he says at the very beginning of the book, um, they're running away from Mrs. McCready. Or yeah. I guess it's not even the very beginning. Lucy and, and Edmund have already been in and back, uh, but they're running away from Mrs. McCready, and I was thinking, okay, if a modern-day author had written this we would have gotten you know several scenes involving mrs mccready and and she would be a fully fleshed out character and there would be multiple scenes of them running away from her and the consequences of that one time they got caught and all this all to set up the one moment when they needed to be chased into the wardrobe room and you know why do you why, why do you care why are they being chased in there why are they so desperate to get away from her and an author nowadays, or maybe, you know, an editor nowadays would say, no, we need to see motivation. We need to know why. And C.S. Lewis is like, well, no, there's a story. I'm going to tell you the story. I guess I'll give you a few sentences on why they're running away from her. Oh, yeah, she was kind of mean and she took people on tours. So they ran away from her. So it's a very different method of storytelling where it's it's very much there's plot point and I need to get to the next plot point. And if... If I feel like, oh, you might, I might lose you, then yeah, maybe I'll just put in a little explanation there. But I'm just going to keep moving, keep going. Yeah, we we don't have to we don't have to hear all about Peeves the Poltergeist and how he chases Harry <laughs> all over the place and makes his life miserable just to get him to the room of requirement at the right time to be able to see that. Yeah, it's it's a different kind of storytelling for a different period of time. We really have become a, a group that. And group the four of us? No, society oh, okay. as a whole. I, yeah, and, I was wondering and by the us, same thing. And wow. by we, but our, but I we mean are society. We're perpetuators of of this in some of our discussion, though. Um, we seem to want more watertight stories. Sure, everything has to make sense inside that world, and you got to justify it and things like that. In a lot of our, when we sit there and we can, you know, I, I'll say complain. It's not really a complaint. Some criticisms like that about some of the movies we see and the books we read. We're like, well, that just doesn't make sense. Well, sometimes it doesn't sometimes but it who doesn't, cares yeah but it doesn't did it affect the plot did it throw did it throw a wrench in the plot to do okay this? with the exception of arcing laser bolts i would go <laughs> along with you on that star but, wars jokes ladies and gentlemen yay that's but that's kind of the the feel that i get and i think that we're starting to get a i don't want to i don't want to scare off good storytellers from telling good stories if they don't have that skill set sure um there have been a few, a couple movies recently, and a, and a few different um, uh, stories that have been a little more shallow in their exploration of character and in um, things. But the plot as a whole, the story that's being told, is clean and clear, and it's it's enjoyable. So, like, what are you thinking of? Um, 
for example, the thing that's coming to my mind right now at first is the the movie The Greatest Showman. Oh, which I okay. haven't seen, and I won't. It's it's a very sh- it's a very shallow movie in terms of the exploration of character and things like that. But the overall feel of the film, everything else is there, and the plot is there. It's and you know what, I get people all the time that are complaining about, oh, it's not true to his life, or whatever. That's okay. You know what, this this isn't meant to be the the thing that teaches everyone about his life. Right. Um, I want I want to encourage that kind of storytelling to continue in this day and age because it has been ridden underneath it has been trotted on a lot because it's not that watertight seal of everything makes sense everything has a purpose it's okay to tell an emotional story which is really interesting because most of what we talk about in sanderson's writing and oathbringer and in all of and most of the rest of his stuff is as airtight as you can possibly have it be i mean Mm -hmm. we talk about how how careful he is uh about about setting things up and about making sure that the chronology of all of these events is happening to uh, happening in the correct way and i and i appreciate the fact that you say that both can both are valuable both have value Mm -hmm. and are worth exploring i love that yeah so this this story was published in 1950 and this was when tolkien was getting ready to publish the lord of the rings it had been in development already for 10 years or more um and yeah, he would publish The Fellowship of the Ring in 1956, I believe, five or six. Anyway, and and uh, so you have these two friends who are writing these two fairy tales, and boy, are they doing it in a different way. Essentially, they are setting up, the two of them, uh, the dichotomy that we're talking about. Do you tell a good, fun children's story, you know, a little romp through the winter wonderland, or do you go the world world building route and create something that is uh that is strictly internally consistent um uh, you know that that a reader really can get lost in and of course that's the route that tolkien took well we know which route won out commercially and that's tolkien's but just because it won out commercially and, and popularly doesn't invalidate the type of storytelling that lewis does and nor does it mean that you can't find it elsewhere these days. It's just that uh, that world-building style uh, definitely became the more popular way to write and consume and and I, stories. I, I'm sorry, I'm kinda, I just want a little clarification. What do you mean one out commercially? I mean, it's not like C.S. Lewis's works are obscure and not they no, haven't made movies from them. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm talking over the last two or three generations. Uh-huh. Uh, and you look at the landscape of fantasy now, Fantasy, well, yeah, fantasy mostly, not so much science fiction, but fantasy for sure. What do you see? It's okay. It's a ton of world building, right? Um, and this Lewisish, Lewisian style of storytelling is uh, is definitely it's it hasn't gone away, it hasn't disappeared. It just it's not the primary. It's not the primary method. I, yeah, but that I, makes sense. But I think part of the reason for that is that the the primary consumers of these kinds of stories got older and buy books a lot longer at that higher level at that and if you want to call it a higher level or at that different level of storytelling than they would if they were buying these when when i first came across this the lion the witch and the wardrobe uh it was not quite 1950 um but it was it was a while ago it was 1948 he was he was a beta reader yeah Yeah, i was thank you so much (laughs) you got the transcript um but but the, those those books 
I, I enjoyed that level of fiction for about another two years. Um, then I moved into starting to read Piers Anthony and Piers Anthony is much more about world building, much more about this other kind of a piece. And that was intriguing to me and has been intriguing to me for 40 years afterwards. So when you, when you start talking about it from a commercial success, it, it makes perfect sense. These books get repeated and recycled over and over and over again because there's always a new crop of readers coming in that are going to expand these books them. meaning the children's book the the lewis this, style this okay. type of this type of writing so we may not see as much of this coming out as new material uh, or as much of uh, as much new material in this style because we've already got it it works really well and it's a great introduction to this idea of fantasy and then when you get into the when you when you get into fantasy and you start consuming your own there's always new stuff coming out because there's new people, new stories to be told or new ways to tell those existing stories. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should talk about something from Reddit, unless one of you has something burning to talk about. Uh, I No, <laughs> no STD jokes, Ken. Dang it. Leave them. Uh, okay. <laughs> and I burned for her. Bestiality so, and STD. Check, check. <laughs> Uh, Vroxilla v, v Roxilla Vroxilla, Vroxilla. I'm going Vroxilla on yeah. this one asks do you think it's weird that there are slight plot discrepancies between this and Magician's Nephew was Lewis just focusing on writing an enjoyable prequel or do they mean anything in the story um, and I asked which plot discrepancies and Vroxilla mentions that the witch isn't even a similar character to how she had been in Magician's Nephew um, and then the magic the magic from the beginning and before the beginning of time wasn't even referenced in Magician's Nephew, but is a really major plot point here. Well, I, I'm not sure that I mind too much just because, maybe because of the points we've just been making, I'm not looking for super internal logical consistency. I'm looking for nice stories. Well, and it, um, it didn't bother it, it me can't, either. It can't make a mess out of things. And it doesn't, I don't but, think. Um, but I, I didn't worry about it so much. Jadis being who she was in the first one, it kind of made sense to me that she morphed into this. Well, and it was how many hundreds of years between Magician's Nephew and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So, I mean, you know, she she can change. And like people, we referenced, people change. people change, especially over hundreds of years. And like like we mentioned earlier, it's, it's kind of like the mid-season, season, season seven filler episode where we go and look back at, you know, how we got to here. So it... it 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 doesn't bother me that it's not fleshed out very much, or I, it didn't bother me reading this that yeah. there were inconsistencies at all. The whole thing is a thousand years difference. Oh, and how do we know that? Did he? She say spends nine hundred years. It's from when she is banished by Aslan to the northern region to when she usurps the throne from the royal family of Narnia. It's nine hundred years when she takes over, and then it puts him in a hundred years of winter. Always winter, never where, Christmas. Where did we learn that? Was that in the book? That no. Oh, okay. okay. Did you just make that up? Yes. Tell me you just made it up. No. Um, it came, it came during my... Like, was that in the director's commentary? My re- Yes. <laughs> that was while I was kind of looking things up, trying to find additional information oh, about okay. stuff. So actually, I wanted to know more about the White Witch because in the story itself, if you haven't read Magician's Nephew, she's she's this scary figure that is your bad guy and you know nothing other than she wants to Right, she's a bad she guy. Want, she yeah, wants she's to conquer. Guy. That's it. Um, so I want to know if there's more. There was a little bit more to it. She's a Disney villain. But they're Basically. really, the truth is, there. Other than what we learn in Magician's Nephew, that she was a queen who destroyed her entire world, 
to to rule to get back at her sister yeah that like that's that's having that information about her i I honestly think magician's nephew the whole purpose of it in terms of what was he going for to establish how you can get like how the wardrobe came to be and where the white witch came from and aslan's and kind of well the and the creation story and gave it back so if this is all about christian allegory then he goes oh shoot i I never really did genesis well it, it gave a backstory to the professor and Relying the sure. witch of the world. That's bad. Well, and I think, uh, you know, this is one of the places where we get to a point of saying how how airtight does the story need to be. We've we've been saying we, uh, that it doesn't need to be, but here's a, a moment where C.S. Lewis is saying, uh, maybe I should have done a little bit differently with, with this with this piece when he gets to when he gets to the magician's nephew. As far as the the idea of the old magic and the older magic not being referenced in the magician's nephew, there wasn't a need to. Um, again, if we're looking at this from a, from a children's story standpoint, you, you give the things when they're needed. So from my standpoint, no, not really. It doesn't bother me. It's just, it's, it's just a part and parcel of reading a different kind of fiction. And so as long as you can accept that, then, you know, you just, you just keep moving forward. And that's really how kids are. Kids, you know, all, all of us have, have children at varying stages of, of growing and, and getting older and, and children at about the age somewhere between somewhere between eight and twelve, uh, which is really kind of where this this book seems to be pitched, um, are very comfortable with saying, "Oh, okay, you're giving me new information. Great, I can run with that." And they don't; it doesn't bother them. Not near the same way as it bothers us when we're going back and looking at an episode of Star Trek: Next Generation that's trying to insert itself in a timeline. Up, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's that's correct. Whatever. Craig was Craig was rolling his eyes, I, so I stopped. I wasn't rolling them. They they were incapable of rolling because they glassed over and frozen. Totally ruined the uh, ending of a bad Enterprise series. All right. So our good friend Temporal Shenanigans, which I think should be Ken's favorite username. That is a fantastic username, and I think fan should, of fan of time travel I'm, stories. I'm stealing as you are. that as my band name too. Temporal <laughs> Shenanigans. Temporal Shenanigans asks, are there any ideas, themes, or actions that seem dangerous or troublesome to you in the present day that are presented in the books? I asked for specifics, uh, and Temporal Shenanigans says, I could see a number of things causing some issue with different readers. Not trying to be judgy, just wondering if you read anything that pulled you out of the story because you'd never want to encourage a kid to do that thing. The thing that occurred uh, to me was Lucy going off with adult tumness and that being the start of a grand adventure. Uh Okay, so there were a few things in here that I thought, oh, wow, from, you know, from a 2018 perspective, you know, it, it ain't 1950 no more. Yeah. Right? And so that, that might be one of them. I didn't really care about that so much. <laughs> um, it, it, when it comes to kids going off with adults, I, I don't know. There if, was... if, Tum, if Tumnus had been portrayed as a guy wearing a trench coat saying, hey, you want a little <laughs> piece of candy? Yeah, I'd be very uncomfortable pretty, with that. Pretty close. Well, He's like, me... hey, do you like my umbrella? Come drink some tea. But this is, <laughs> but we're talking about a fawn. I'm just kidding. Um, don't I, accept... I would say that if, if you're going to have problems with that, maybe you know, children leading a revolution and killing other... You know. <laughs> killing animals. Like, hey, centaur, stab. Yeah I, yeah, I might draw a line there. It's... Uh, you're starting to stare. There, there are certain things I get it, but don't accept dinner from woodland creatures. <laughs> how about we're in the middle? How of about giving fiction. them a little bit of brandy to keep them warm? That's you what know? I. Yeah. I love. Well, <laughs> I love that moment, and I, you know, I feel like there are there have been many many improvements to society, and no, we probably shouldn't give kids hard liquors. <laughs> that's that's fine. But at the same time, Brandy's, I do like the idea that uh, brandy's that, a spirit, not a liquor. That's fine. That's. Are you sure? 
I thought so. I don't, I'm not so sure. We'll Ryan will look it up. Ryan's he's from Ryan's going to look it up. So anyway, <laughs> but I, I, I kind of find it charming to look back on a time when people were a little bit less concerned about that and, and treated kids as uh, not so fragile. Um, you know, Lucy, she sounds like she's probably, what, six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in there, where it's like, maybe a parent shouldn't be letting her wander the countryside by herself, but but she wasn't, you know, she, she wandered into Narnia by accident, and like, she's old enough to make some decisions on her own, maybe, you know, not a ton, but... When I was eight years old, I was running through the forest playing with my, on my bike. With your and, buddies? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, well, free know, range parenting. That was 1843 was a different time. But since they're British, we need to call them fragile. <laughs> it's fragile. It must be Italian. <laughs> That's Italian. Todd is correct, by the way. Uh, it's a spirit. It is a spirit. Oh, man. Turns out I don't know much about alcohol. Wow. Uh, wait what? a minute. I, I, do know, I do know that apple brandy is uh, most famously from the region, the Calvados region of France. Of course you would. Yeah. So that was, that was where I lived. For Although a while. this also says that. Basically, spirits and liquor are the same thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> They're they both go. alcoholic. Uh, okay, forty so percent proof. The other, like that, the other so. thing, when 40. it, when it, uh, when temporal shenanigans first asked this question, what might bother readers now? The thing I was that I instantly thought of was what we kind of joked about earlier, where it was like, here's this dagger, here's this bow yeah, and arrow. That's... Don't worry though, your girls, you won't have you to use it. Don't go fighting your girls. Yeah, and that I, was the one I thought too. You know, when I read that part, I recognized that it would not sit well with some people, but mm-hmm. I don't really care too much. I, I, in my mind, I just go, oh no, this was published in 1950. Women did not go to war. That you know, it was not a thing at that time. They didn't fight you know uh, female fisticuffs in the octagon were not a thing at the time well, you know, I, well and it's not entirely it's not entirely like he said oh you know, he gave her a bow and arrow right. and a dagger it's not like he said we're not gonna you just you get the uh the healing um the healing the cordial. cordial the cordial you get the healing cordial and we'll give you a set of bandages and you can go over <laughs> in the nurse's tent over here and take care right. of it he, like he although actually, there was the moment when malgrim the uh the wolf captain is chasing uh, susan up the tree Mm-hmm. And she's about to faint yeah. because she's a girl and she's not brave enough to. And you girls know, faint in critical girls. situations. Yeah. Um, boy, are there some funny stories I could tell you now, but <laughs> I won't. I won't. But anyway, but nowadays we might go. Oh no, girls can be just as brave as boys, and so that might not sit well. Sure. With modern readers, I it, and, it was also a measure of chivalry, I think, in the sense that you know, yes, women, you may have to fight, but men it is your duty and responsibility to protect your women you know that sort of thing because again 1950 you know right yeah Uh, of course this is a topic that we four white men probably shouldn't spend too much time on (laughs) white man privilege (laughs) (laughs) i'm checking uh okay yeah never never mind there was a joke there but i'll let it go uh smart smart right okay jafu go Jafu! Jafu asks, what the heck is Santa Claus doing in Narnia? I get it, it's a children's story and blah, blah, blah. But even nine-year-old me thought it was weird to see him in this case. Um, (laughs) And I'm actually with Jafu on this one. I remember as a kid going, what? Santa Claus? He's ours. What's he doing in Narnia? Right. Or I guess he's Father Christmas. He's not Santa Claus. Philistines. Mm-hmm. But um, I, anyway, I he it, it's 
this is where you really have to let go. Yeah. Like we were talking about earlier. This is a story that includes um, creatures and elements from uh, from English, from Norse myths, from Christianity, from Jewish myths, for, you know, like this whole mishmash of crap that he just throws together in this snowy forest. That, um, that it, makes sense to children. That's yeah. maybe, always yeah. winter, but never Christmas. Son of a... And, <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's the thing, is that this idea that, that wintertime and Christmas go hand in hand, and that the, the first indication of the breaking of the witch's power is that Christmas has arrived. Um, so for me, I, I mean, uh, again, this is one of those pieces where I'm kind of like, if I'm looking at it from a children's story perspective... I'm okay with it. If I'm looking at it from a literary critique standpoint, then yeah, I'm going to stop and I'm going to say, you know, wow, a little weird. What a yeah. what a tired and trite way of being able to introduce some magical gifts to people. Why not just have <laughs> why not just have Aslan commission them and give them that way? But you know what? It's it's a it's a, a if you wish, it's a trope that's used effectively in the story in the context of being a children's story. Well, and it fits within. Again, I, I can't. I wish I had a way to tie this in as to this is where it is. But this Narnia has been going through a hundred years of winter, so that concept of um, winter without Christmas um, being such a long and dark period as well that mm. that really means that you need something more than just Aslan commissioning those pieces. Like there needs to be something that signals this a little bit more so. And I I really liked actually having Father Christmas there. Because it really, for me, Christmas is my favorite holiday, mm-hmm. um, and the world changes when it's done. Yes, it it really does for me. Um, there's all the way up through that, and even for a few days afterwards, there's just like a warmth to the to the world as a whole. But then you hit January and February, and it just gets bitter. Yeah, it's bitterness. It's bitter cold. Um, and even though the like weather and temperature may not be that different than when it is in December, like I feel it different. And so for me. I love, I, I like, I loved having Father Christmas there because it brought to me that that warmth that will then show us the spring that will come when Aslan is there. Yes, I like it. I'll buy it. Oh. Uh, so maybe it's time to move on to what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Let's talk about Christian allegory. Um, all right. So, uh, RDU Carolina, Carolina yeah. says my main interest in this book is the religious metaphors would love to hear what you guys think about that um, Ryan I cut you off earlier did you have are you ready to go on with what you were saying I want to find the give me just a second I want to find the actual quote of what he said um, because he actually said something about that this wasn't intended to be allegory right hey. well and I I would like to know when he said that because I would wonder if it's a bit of CYA on Lewis's part. Right. And we'll get into this in a moment. But my my only issue with this, and the reason that I don't like allegory in general, uh, I, I do like some specific allegories, but in general, I have a hard time with allegory just because um, it, it is, it allegory does not allow for what we have been um, liking about Lewis in this discussion. What we have enjoyed is that he doesn't worry about internal consistency and logic and all of that, and it you know it makes it a much more uh, loose, fun, enjoyable children's story that we don't have to be too concerned about. But in an allegory, you have to be 
extremely strict with yourself and how you present certain things because an allegory is a story in which everything represents something else. I thought you were going to say that allegory is typically lazy storytelling. No, not necessarily. No, I think actually crafting a really good allegory is probably among the most difficult yes. forms of storytelling. So I, I wouldn't call it lazy I, at all. I would agree with you. But if you take somebody who's not willing to go through all of that time, then you have problems. Yep, and so that's my you, other point. you come into uh, something like Narnia and uh, and then you have a paragraph like um, Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves around him in the shape of a half moon. There were tree women there and well women, dryads and naiads, as they used to be called, who had stringed instruments. It was they who had made the music. There were four great centaurs. The horse part of them was like huge English farm horses. And he goes on and he's describing this huge gathering. And so if this is a true allegory, then you have to ask yourself, why are they in a half moon? What does that represent? Why are they playing music? What does that represent? Why are the centaurs, you know, English draft horses? What does that represent? And so the allegory in an extended story like this, the allegory part of it really starts to fall apart. And that's why it's, it, you can't really think of it as a, tr as a real allegory. As a, as a full allegory. Right. And so did you find the quote, what it was that he said? I found a piece here. He, he, he says that these are, he calls them supposals. Yes, supposals. That's the word I was Not thinking. an allegory. And a supposal is simply saying um, where the author begins the story by supposing a simple concept, by saying, if God, as we know him, had to manifest himself in another world like Narnia, how would that look? What would that be? And in this case, it's Aslan. So that's what he's saying here is that I'm not saying that Aslan is Christ or that this, you know, for sure it, it, it really works out that way very nicely because that's where he's writing from and that's what he knows. But if you were to have to uh, introduce God or any concept or whatever to another world, just transfer it over and say, how does this affect this world? So that's the supposed. So it's fiction. That did that, that what you're describing or whatever that uh, definition is, because I did read that also. Uh, when I read that, I went, oh, so it, it's fiction. That's that describes all of fiction, right? That well, so that, it, I, I would it, say that fits. It can. The, I would it, say that fits the that fits within the definition of fiction, but that is not the definition of fiction. Yes, right. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is you know we we're we're talking about it from a standpoint of of wanting it to be a full allegory, but I think that there are, there are concepts and ideas that he's teaching that are rooted within the uh, within the ideals of christianity and he's and again i i guess i'm i and maybe it's because i'm just too simple but i was seeing it again from a child's perspective telling the telling about the power of a voluntary sacrifice having over all of creation is a really tough deal and the way that it is presented in the gospels uh, in in traditional Christian literature, is is something that takes some some time, some expertise, and some willingness to really dig into it to understand, and then also to get an understanding of of uh, some of the prophetic uh, prophetic foretellings that come in the in the Old Testament, how they tie together. C.S. Lewis takes the same idea and puts it together pretty simply. And says, this is something you need to understand. The idea of a willing sacrifice has greater power than you might imagine. 
Um, I mean, I, yeah, I've got the specific quote, but if, if what we're doing is looking at ideas or concepts around Christianity, and again, that he's trying to help teach them to children and use them to help bridge the gap or help start the story and start the understanding of what these Christian principles are going to be, then again, I, I don't see the problem with it at, my, at quite the same level as if it were, I'm going to retell all of Christianity's literature in these books. Yeah, that would be pretty rough, and they wouldn't be very enjoyable. I am reminded of, um, oh gosh, what was the name of that? Uh, oh, there's a book series by Orson Scott Card. It was like... Oh, Songs of a Distant Earth? No, well, it was, I don't know. Is that the name of the series? Uh, but he essentially, so Orson Scott Card, Mormon author, rewrote the Book of Mormon, um, yeah. but he, he just ripped off every single plot point and retold it as it's, a sort of space fantasy. Yeah, it's it's um, Songs of a Distant Earth. And, okay. And, and it's... It was well, not well received, mm -mm. and uh, I, I never actually read it, but from everybody I heard from who did read it they just said well you know it's it lacks the punch it lacks the power of the original and it just it feels cheap because he ripped off every every point anyway so the the yeah. point i'm getting to here is that c.s lewis could have said all right so i'm going to take the gospel of matthew and hit it point by point uh and you know retell it in this magical narnia land and he didn't right and thank goodness for that thank goodness yeah. he wasn't doing a, a real true point for point allegory uh so I guess my what what? <laughs> Sorry, I just had this vision in my head of, and here comes the lightning. You know, Aslan going down to the a stream and getting a fish out of it there, and bringing that up and feeding a whole bunch of. <laughs> well, there is a moment at the end when he uh, he's they, they he, he won the battle, it, yeah. and then the narrator says, "I I don't know how he fed everybody, but everybody had but everybody tea. had oh, everybody right, had yeah. high That's right. tea." Um, so he has he did, he did feed the thousands. Father, Father Christmas came back and gave everybody dishes because he'd been pulling those out of his sack for a couple of hours by then <laughs> so there are moments I mean there there are moments when he'll pull in very very specific story elements um, and you can get I'm gonna use that from now on by the way pull it out of my sack <laughs> good lord I was about to Ken I was literally going to say something biblical and then you said that you're welcome I I, just, I like there's, I, there's I, plenty of talk I about that sort of thing I in the hate, bible i <laughs> hate you so much would you like to refer to numbers <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna go song, song of solomon, solomon. <laughs> uh okay so sorry the point bible. i was gonna make is that you can get pretty deep with the christian allegory stuff you can go into what he meant by certain things so the stone table for instance it's it's a it is a stone tablet with carved things in there like carved symbols this is obviously the mosaic law you know yeah. so you have these it's stone an tablets sacrifice and Abraham then and... he is sacrificed and he is resurrected and at that moment the they stone break. table breaks yeah. so the you know you can go into all right well now we're done with the law of moses and he's bringing in the the new testament the ultimate yeah the the and, you know so you can do things like that and and he has these cool little moments if you are if you're a christian and you're you went to plenty of sunday school and you are yeah you know willing to look for these things you can find them but you don't have to mm -mm. uh you can simply take it like i did when i was 7 i didn't understand all this crap about the mosaic law and uh, you know i he, the stone table breaks because it was the bad place that aslan was killed and so when he was resurrected, he he broke it because he was like, "Screw you, stone table, 
you're you're out of here um it, you know that's that's as far as my brain went sure. as an eight-year-old and so that's that's fine i actually read through this when looking specifically since it's been a long time since i've read it looking specifically for um examples of religious inspiration and i don't think they were necessarily christian more than they were like uh you know right or wrong good or evil like for example when when uh Edmund has the Turkish delight and he just keeps downing it and he just keeps eating it. And, uh, Turkish delight. Yeah. And, uh, where I can't find it in my notes right now. The, the thought of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And he, the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat, but the sicker he got is, is a reference to, to sin. In my opinion, the more you sin, the more you want to, yeah, this is great for a time, but when you stop and you get to thinking about it, the worse you feel. And so I, I thought that was kind of a reference to sin. The one, one more he mentioned here was, thank you, brother Ken. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was one more that, that Aslan mentioned about uh, everybody lean back um, about uh, how the, the people, the, the supporters, the followers of Aslan will believe what he's saying, but the people who are following the, the witch um, will not, or they'll call him Charlotte and that sort of thing. And it was kind of like a wicked, take the truth to be hard type thing. Um, that is, it is, is in general religion point. But Ken, anyway, Ken, are you, uh, are you hoping to teach a Sunday school class right now? I taught one is that, earlier. Is that what we're going for? I taught one earlier. All right. One day I'll use the line, the witch in the wardrobe in the, <laughs> it gets used often you know, enough. Yeah. When I, when I was, uh, uh, so I was a missionary for a couple of years in France and I would teach people in their living rooms about, all sorts of concepts and I would get to faith and instead of going to something like Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, I'd be like, I see you have a copy of The Empire Strikes Back on yes. your mantle. Let's pull that down. That was <laughs> that was my go-to. <laughs> uh, so anyway, let's let's move on unless you guys have anything else about the Christian stuff to say. There's one thing that we, I think, needs to be mentioned okay. regarding Christian allegory and this piece and it's specifically, it's referred to as the deep magic and the deeper magic from before time began yes something like that um we've hit upon the effects of it but the interesting thing is that the witch only understands the deep magic because that's she's been using that yes the deep magic which gave her the ability to claim traitors to claim those who would follow her and those who would sin betray their own yeah and which is what calls for Aslan's sacrifice. And then there's inscription on the table on the outside there that says, if an innocent will take the place of um, the guilty, that the table will crack. It's the whole thing. Yeah, the, the basis of the story, basically. Yeah, the, the table will crack and that death itself will reverse, will act in reverse. Um, two things about that are very interesting to me. First, um, when Aslan calls out the witch on it, it says... Don't talk to me about the magics. I was there when they were about the deep magic. I was there when it was written. Is there a part of it? Which gives us just exactly how, what his locate, what his role is in this. He was part how authoritative of, he is. Yeah, he yes. was part of this group that wrote this original, the the deep magic. Um, but the witch isn't aware of the deeper magic mm-hmm. because if she was, the her, her plan wouldn't work. And I think that's incredibly interesting in terms of, especially Christian allegory, to try and play that next to because Jadis is essentially our Satan figure. There's another yes, one yeah. that comes in in our which but, really doesn't work, but sure in this story, right? Sure, 
I'm, I'm just talking allegorically. She doesn't work as Satan, but fine. Okay, we, we could discuss that point. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll, but we'll do that offline. <laughs> yeah. But she's working as the as as Satan figure here. The idea that he could not understand the full nature of what needed to be done. Yes. What has to happen and why that works because why would you claim why would you give that like why would you give that back if you knew that? One of my one of my favorite pieces of of Christian literature and and of Jewish literature too is the story of Job which if if you've if you've looked into the 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 dating of the way that the old testament was arranged job is actually one of the older books um and i've i've always been impressed and 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 a, a little bit a, a little bit amused at the idea that god and satan would be basically having a poker night and using job as the as the chips right. as the pot um, and also as the subject around which all of this betting is going to occur, um, the the fact that in in this case, um, you you have a you have a Satan figure who is trying to thwart the plans of God without understanding what God knows makes it fit very well makes makes that allegorical piece fit very well for this retelling. Jadis knows part; she doesn't know all, and that's why evil always fails and and again if we're looking at it from a children's perspective that's why we have faith that's why we have that's why we start some of these kinds of conversations that's how we can start them and i'm kind of curious and this could be coming only from my own personal religious background or or whatever but there's this um especially in, in lds culture there's this concept of this council before the world began right where everything was decided oh my- Goodness, we are getting. I can't believe you went there. Deep into the weeds here. That's okay. That's okay. Hold on, hold on. Thirty seconds. But just because it fits within this story, it fits here um, in the sense that Satan being cast out, him falling, being coming a fallen angel, and going forward with another plan that he was not, you know, whether or not he understood everything before, before that, like it just it fit in this moment for me within the context of what I had been taught. Sure. Whether that's true or not, you can debate. I don't care. We don't want to have that debate with you necessarily anyway. But it fit, and it kind of gave me an additional piece here as to why maybe she wouldn't, why this figure wouldn't understand God's full vision on this. And I th- and I think that I think that C.S. Lewis would agree. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, from, it's from a the, somewhat safer. No, somewhat I, safer. <laughs> but we didn't. We, we didn't I get do to talk try about Turkish delight. At I all. try as uh, I, I try to keep politics and religion out of it to a, a reasonable degree. Certainly, yeah. partisan politics and. Uh, and uh, you know specific religions, but at a certain point, when you're talking about Lion of the Witch and the Wardrobe, yeah, you're going to get into pretty some pretty religious territory. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, let me draw on what we know, like exactly, and our our point of perspective from these. We could we could have the same sort of religious discussion about any of our books, but it would alienate a listening base down to a very small group. <laughs> sure. Just wait, just wait until we get to the horse and his boy. There's oh, going to be some fun <laughs> stuff there. So uh, there, you're right, Todd. We haven't talked about Turkish delight. So shut mm-hmm. up and let me get to that point. Okay. Good. Uh, Gordon, man. Uh, I'm all glad right. it was you this time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was something that a couple of people brought up. I want to find... Who was it? Okay. Harvey Greenfield. Harvey Greenfield. Okay, I got to ask the big one. Why Turkish Delight? What made it so tempting that it was worth damning family, friends, and Big Daddy Lion Jesus? It's true, because Turkish Delight is kind of nasty. He says, I, Harvey Greenfield says, I tried that stuff truly vile. Now, look, 
Harvey Greenfield, thou shalt not cast stones in thy glass house because, <laughs> uh, I mean, who are any of us to judge? So if you're Australian, you eat Vegemite and you're disgusting. If you're haggis. English, if you're English, yeah, you have haggis or black pudding and you're disgusting. If you are Swedish, you have pickled herring, which isn't so bad, but it's still a little, little different and kind of gross. Ludifus. A lot of people outside of the United States would say root beer, and and that's exactly yep. what I was going for. Germaline. In America, especially west, the Western U.S., we drink root beer. It is easily my favorite drink, and other people think it tastes like medicine. Yeah, yes, and you know, and so, I who cares? Turkish delight. Todd loves it because he's weird and old. I do love Turkish delight, and I mean, none of the rest. Of it. Ryan, you have you had it? I don't. Ken and I have not knowingly. I don't like it mostly because of the consistency. It's this it's this gel yeah, it's, it's this gelatin weird. and sugar type thing yeah. and it it just kind of slimy in your mouth. The taste isn't so bad and the sugar it's usually a powdered sugar that it's all right. Best guess why Turkish delight is because it had some sort of um sentimental value to to C.S. Lewis. I or looked at it's it. because what ev- it's what everybody was eating as sweets back then. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one or the other. Well, in Who Christian cares? allegorical terms, Turkish delight is actually the manna that God sent from heaven. <laughs> if, you, uh, <laughs> if you go to the mystical land of Turkey, yeah, uh, it's true. It, it's quite delightful. I love actually. I would Turkish say delight. All right, the and fries, Todd has made his contribution. Fries, cho- no. fries, chocolate covered Turkish delight no. is some of the most delightful. Just stop. And by the I way, stop. It's old. It's 18th century confection. So uh, they don't. They didn't know back in the 18th century. Uh, yeah, Turkish delight. It's fine. Now, I did want to point out that Turkish Delight is... I, I was listening to one of my favorite artists recently. Uh, she has a song called Turkish Delight, and it turns out it is, in fact, based on the Chronicles of Narnia. I went and looked up the lyrics. <laughs> she is this... She's this Norwegian pop star named Suzanne Sunfer, or I don't know how you'd really say it. I'm sure it's much more melodious when you actually say it in Norwegian. But uh, she has a song called Turkish Delight, and it's all about... Uh, uh, you know, Magrams at the door and, you know, if, if eternal winter and eternal snow, I'll have a Turkish delight. And it, it's it's wow. her stuff, especially that album. Uh, maybe I'll throw it on the end of this episode. But uh, that album is very it's very much like the art student, the, the indie art school version of pop music. And so it's probably not for everybody, but uh, I love it so much and so it's your own turkish delight i'll throw i'll throw on we'll start the my favorite turkish delight uh, at the end of the episode all i all i picture it is the starlight vocal band singing sky rockets in flight." i think we have a potential first episode for when we do the legendary yum and yes yes series (laughs) so you're you are ruining it oh i'm sorry but that's fine my wife i i mentioned to somebody on reddit that my wife had suggested that we do uh an april fool's day episode where we do food criticism and call it the legendary yum. So awesome. You did ruin it. Yeah. You ruined it. I'm sorry. I, that doesn't mean we can't do it anyway, because uh, let's be honest, all six of you who made it to the end of this episode, <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's spoiled for you. Craig ruined it on Reddit anyway. Um, anyway, all right, Whatever. guys. People will want to become, that'll be like a recurring segment that they're going to want. <laughs> the legendary yum. The legendary yum. Uh, all right, so let's let's cut and run. Thank you for listening, everybody. I can't believe we made it over an hour on the friggin' Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, <laughs> but we did. So if you enjoyed it, go get your head checked and then go to patreon.com slash legendarium and support the show and go to the legendarium.reddit.com just to uh, join the conversation there 
and we will see you next week for Prince Caspian. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, it'll be our second Oathbringer episode. Thanks again for listening. We will see you guys later. Later.